0: Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, and we've got a great topic for you today. Uh, It's all about energy, and energy as it relates to the petroleum industry, to renewables, to about where we're going, to the impacts on climate change, and all of those factors that go into making up this world that we live in and this earth that we want to preserve. Our guest today is Fred Gallagher, a geologist by training with an incredible background in all phases of the energy industry. The Common Bridge, of course, is available at substack.com. Just look up The Common Bridge, click subscribe and join our discussion. Podcasts available on your favorite podcast outlets on YouTube TV and at Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app. So I welcome today, Mr. Fred Gallagher. Fred, it's really good to see you. How are you?
1: Good to see you, Rich. Uh, Thank you very much. Doing very well.
0: Thank you. Well, I've been very much looking forward to this day and trying to read up as much as I can. And there's a lot of information out there, and frankly, most of it I don't understand. So hopefully, in a couple hours, we're going to know uh, a little bit more. You know, Fred, the the Paris Climate Agreement had set a goal of limiting global warming to less than two degrees Celsius, so two degrees above the pre industrialized levels as best as they can be managed. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change IPCC has taken the position that even a two degree Celsius increase is too high. And global warming should be limited to one and a half degrees Celsius to prevent all of the really bad things that could happen from climate change. The IPCC and others say that the current efforts aren't going to be enough, but others say that countries maximizing their ambitions and pledges could result in a decline of greenhouse gas emissions that might set a pathway onto that safe range between 1.8 and 2.1 degrees Celsius. Of course, all of those efforts play into the production, the transmission, and the consumption of energy, and everyone listening, reading, or viewing this episode of The Common Bridge is consuming electricity to do that. Reliable, cheap, always-on electricity is an assumed part of modern life. It's a measure whether you're a first-world country or not. So where are we today in the transition to new energy sources And Mr. Gallagher is going to shed some light on this. Look, he's got a a unique career because he's located oil and then he had to figure out where to place wind farms. So, Fred, welcome to the Common Bridge. Our, Our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests. So tell us a little bit, where did you grow up and what were your early days like?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a, a real quick sketch on that. I'm, uh, I'm Canadian, and I was born and raised in Calgary. Uh, many, uh, many of your audience will probably know Calgary, either through uh, their work or, or, other, uh, or, or other events. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a geologist by my background. Um, I spent uh, quite a bit of time exploring for minerals in, in the Arctic, in, uh, in northern Canada, and uh, that was in the late 70s. And uh, that was before and after graduation. So that was kind of my early start out in the field looking for uh, pounding on rocks and looking for, uh, looking for minerals or looking for oil and gas. Uh, I became a, a geologist, petroleum geologist with uh, Amoco, uh, which many of you uh, would also be familiar with. Uh, it was an uh, uh, organization based out of Chicago. And uh, I, uh, I spent uh, my early career in Canada uh, but uh, then also went to Australia, Houston, and eventually uh, ended up in Chicago.
0: Those are all the, the energy hotspots. And I understand you are a degreed geologist from the University of Calgary, and you also had postgraduate work in Switzerland.
1: Yes, yeah, I did my MBA in uh, in Switzerland uh, at a institution called IMD in Lausanne, Switzerland, uh, and that was a very interesting opportunity in my life because I was questioning uh, how does this energy business uh, Go forward. It seems like we have this unitary product. Seems like we uh, we we think that that's all there is there. Uh, And uh, what I wanted to understand was uh, how how the rest of the world viewed energy. And I didn't want to stay in the North American bubble with respect to that. I wanted to understand a little bit more about what, uh, what the world thinks. And uh, so I went to IMD. And uh, lo and behold, I got some really great eye-opening experiences, uh, 30 different nationalities in my class. And... Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in the UK, right as the UK was really embracing uh, both the electrical business change, which was brought on by Margaret Thatcher. Uh, the, whole, the whole deregulation of the electric, electricity business uh, became very exciting to me, and I was trying to figure out how I could plug into that. And renewables were a big part of that. Uh, change in the UK at the time. So it was, a, it was an excellent opportunity to just really try to uh, understand uh, the world from a larger perspective. And in fact, you know, in the oil and gas business, we always thought that was the energy business. And of course, electricity was just utilities. Well, um, I found out that energy is much, much larger and much, much broader than just that. And that was, that was a big part of it. So I, uh, when I came back from my MBA, it transitioned from, uh, from petroleum to wind. And, uh, and, uh, that was in the, uh, early nineties. I graduated uh, in 91. And, uh, I was trying to figure out where in the world to, uh, to really um, put my skills in, in place. I looked at the UK quite a bit, looked at Europe quite a bit. And then I realized that my own backyard was actually probably one of the most interesting places uh, for renewable energy in, in the world. Uh, and it was uh, after a, a sort of a, a long project of about six months really trying to figure out what energy resource I could really plug myself into. That's when I kind of landed on wind energy.
0: And my understanding with wind, you just can't put up a windmill anyplace, just like you can't put an oil rig someplace because they just don't work. And what did you have to do to figure out where to put those windmills or turbines or whatever you were putting up?
1: Well, uh, wind is a natural resource. Sun is a natural resource, just like oil and gas. Um, And and so it really was much of that same mindset of, okay, where do we find the best spots? What can we do to explore for the best spots? And, of course, the technology was changing rather rapidly at the time. And I joined with two partners who... uh, who uh, had already been in the business for 15 years, believe it or not. That's 30 years ago, and, uh, and they had already been in the business for 15 years. Um, and uh, it was really a, a marrying of those two aspects. One, uh, they were very technological in their orientation, and I was very resource-oriented. And so we uh, we spent quite a bit of time setting up masts all over the place in various different uh, great locales. We had about 50,000 acres under, uh, under lease. Uh, to uh, to try to uh, to sort that out and figure out where was the best spot, and we started figuring out how we could build great wind farms. Uh, but the real challenge was that uh, utilities weren't buying technology; they weren't interested in technology. They were interested in uh, power, and uh, and a lot of the industry had been focused on trying to sell technology to the utilities, and we. St- we kind of went a different route, and we started selling power to utilities, and that made all the difference.
0: So you've been involved with decarbonization, with carbon-based fuels, geothermal, I understand, early hydrogen development, wind, and solar. And we're going to dig into all those things today, and what is it you're up to today, what's your personal life like, and what's your job like today?
1: I, I've kind of struck out on another uh angle of this package, which is how are we going to get to uh, a goal like net zero by 2050? And what's it going to take to get there? And uh, so this is kind of an interesting part of our whole discussion today. And one of the things that's, it's going to take is a lot more interconnection. And so I've been working on trying to figure out how do we create rights of way that deal with all of the social and, uh, and other issues associated with... Uh, uh, rights away and and pathways for energy uh, development, and trying to figure out how we develop corridors uh, that we can that we can then use for the next generation of energy transportation. so that's that's what and so my day really looks like uh, talking to politicians, talking to energy resource uh, people, talking to experts uh, in all manner of uh, fields, from governance to first Nations issues um, and it's uh, it's a pretty exciting and pretty broad reaching opportunity. But my my I like I like the name that you use, the common bridge, because that's the way I look at my career. It, my whole career has been trying to figure out how do we bridge the gaps between various different opportunities and various different Ideologies, thought processes, and that—that's essentially the. um, I I think it's what I can bring to the package. Is how do we bridge those gaps and how do we bring those together? So, I mean, uh, my early career really uh, uh, brings that to the light, and 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 I think that's what I've pursued most of my life.
0: And getting that to market. So I'm glad that we have you on that and and colleagues like you. But but you know, look, here's what the. Average person here. They hear, oh, hey, we're going to have electrification of cars. We're going to have renewable energy. We're maybe going to slap carbon taxes on. And what do they see? They see gasoline prices soaring. They see droughts coming up. They see more severe weather. And they're wondering how all this plays in. And then they're getting these simple answers. Hey, let's quit searching for oil and coal because we have to mine that stuff and refine it and ship it and then burn it. And we're, that just dumps carbons and other pollutants into the atmosphere. I ah, just switch over because look, we've got abundant renewals. The sun's out, the wind blows, it's renewable, it's free, and it's better than <laughs> you know oil from dictators. But look, we know there's a lot more behind the headlines and the slogan. So let's get into some little education and maybe some policy ideas. Fred, in your view, what is the transition to renewables? If that's indeed where we're going, what's it going to look like?
1: Well, uh, let's let's try uh, tease that apart a little bit. <clears throat> First of all, uh, energy is really fundamental to our current uh, prosperity. I mean, without energy, uh, you know, our society would be still back in the stone age, literally. Uh, you know, I think it's it's. Um, Created the population explosion that we have. It's the prosperity that we've seen, and it it really enters every single part of our life. And uh, you know, the, one of the things that I like to use is, is the analogy that it's from upstream resource exploration right to your toothbrush. Um, there's there's just every part of our life is affected by this, and and it is one of the most capital intensive businesses in the, in the world. Um, you know, just just give you a little bit of an example. I mean. Um, IEA was 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 uh, doing some work. That's the International Energy Agency. Was doing some work on, uh, you know, what is the uh, what is the amount of uh, capital that's put into the business each year uh, to to rejuvenate the what we already have, and we're talking about two trillion dollars a year annually worldwide uh, put into just just fixing up and, and uh, replenishing and what we already have. So you know that gives you a bit of a perspective on the size of this industry it is enormous and it is extremely complex because it embraces every form of energy you can imagine and every form of of delivery you can imagine so that that's really an important uh, part of the package uh, for us to to really understand that and you know really when you look at how do we how do we Change this package. Well, the the energy business really was developed to uh, deliver uh, hydrocarbon fuels and and other and other forms of energy, but largely hydrocarbon fuels in the early stages to uh, the end use customer that would consume it. And consuming meant combusting it, burning it. Uh, and that's really the way our system is set up. And we're going to have to rethink that because. Uh, right now, we got billions of, uh, of tailpipes, exhaust pipes, all over the world, and they are producing lots of emissions—not just carbon dioxide, but lots of other emissions. That, you know, logically, we need to change that. When we've got almost 10 billion people on the planet, we got to figure out better ways to do that without dumping the uh, the benefits that we have into our atmosphere. Uh, willy nilly. So I mean that's that's the scope of the of the, the the issue.
0: If I understand what you're saying and I hadn't thought about it that way that the energy systems have been built to deliver these hydrocarbon fuels and we're burning them right where we're using them. So the furnace in my home burns natural gas and I use it right there and if you put gasoline into an internal combustion engine, it doesn't do anything until you combust it. And so now we're dealing with that. But but I, I think if I inferring what you're saying, we're gonna move that generation someplace else. Like the power for my car is going to come from a power plant someplace, transmitted some way, and then charges the batteries in my car that's going to be stored. That's kind of the that's a that the magnitude of that change over 10 billion people and over all these millions of tailpipes that's just hard to get my head around.
1: Well, I think I think that's exactly right. And I think you know, uh, electricity is an interesting example because electricity is is the opposite. Uh, in, in in the case of electricity, you're combusting or burning or or producing the electricity uh, in, a, in a, either remotely or in a centralized station, and then you're and then you're shipping the zero energy uh, energy uh, zero emissions energy to the to the end user. So the end user is not actually producing any carbon or emissions at the point of use. And, and, and so this is the kind of flip around that we got to think about with respect to the energy system is that it's currently built to, for the end user to combust most of the a majority of the product. Versus being able to do it centrally and either generate it from zero emission sources or take the emissions and put them somewhere centrally where they can be stored and and, and kept away from the atmosphere. So, I mean, that it's a fundamental change. And, you know, IEA has really done some interesting work around this. Um, considering it takes $2 billion, $2 trillion, excuse me, $2 trillion a year just to keep our energy system going currently, they estimate that somewhere in the order of $4 trillion a year is going to need to be invested to get us to that magic net zero by 2050.
0: We have these long-term investments that we need to make in power generation, transmission, and then the devices for the end user. And we were feeding that to the tune of $2 trillion a year just to keep it going. We need $4 trillion to get to what's coming next, we think, which are also long-term investments. And I think we should talk about that because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they claim, this is is their words, there's already cost-effective and technology-mature solutions to help lessen climate change. And they cite wind and solar capacity that's facilitated by flexible technologies is that true or true to a degree? What do we know about cost effective and mature technologies to it just sounds oversimplified, but what's the real story?
1: I think the uh, the real point is that uh yes, uh wind and solar are now uh on an unsubsidized basis, uh cost effective with new with any other new resources that might be hydrocarbon-based. Uh and and so that's that's very true. In fact, they're less expensive now than they were than 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 uh, current um, hydrocarbon based technologies. Uh, they're even competitive on if you if you just look at the marginal cost of running, let's say, a coal plant or running a natural gas plant, they're they're, they're cost competitive in that sense as well uh, on an unsubsidized basis. <clears throat> the issue is really inertia. Well, right? the uh, the keep. The key problem here is, that I think, we tend to, to look for silver, silver bullets. Um, you know, humanity is—that's uh, that's one of our Achilles' heels. I think is that we, we, we tend to look for silver bullets. We tend to think that everything is maybe simpler than we think it is. Let's let, let's let's talk about the energy industry from a point of view of the the, the size and the scale here. You know, we've already alluded to it. it takes about two billion dollars. Sorry, two trillion dollars a year just to keep us going. Uh, as we currently are, and about four trillion dollars a year will be needed between now and 2050. That's that's basically 30 years at four trillion dollars a year uh, invested. So it, let's let's talk about capital stock. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm going to throw that term out because uh, it, it's a useful one to think about um, uh, because this this industry is so capital intensive. It takes t- uh, you know people make investments and they make investments that are going to be 20, 30 years uh, long. Uh, So if you think about, let's say, a natural gas plant today, uh, you, you install a natural gas plant today, you're going to be uh, you, you're going to expect 20 to 30 years of, of investment returns out of that. To turn that over, or what's called capital stock turnover, uh, just makes no sense. So if, if you think about it in terms of your car, okay, uh, you purchase your car, uh, You probably the average life of a car is somewhere around 15 years uh, that that you get. So So think of turning, if you turn that car in after one year or two years, uh, economically that doesn't make a lot of sense and 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 really physically you know if, if we have to invest four trillion dollars a year that's a significant proportion of the world's gp uh can you imagine trying to accelerate that uh, well that that's the conundrum we're dealing with in terms of trying to change from one to the other and so so getting to your question of cost you know today's uh today wind power and solar are uh, more competitive than most other resources that are available on a hydrocarbon or nuclear basis, on an L- on a levelized cost of, of uh, equivalent, they are they are more competitive, and on an unsubsidized uh, marginal cost basis, they they compete really well with, with, let's say, natural gas or coal, meaning that they are less costly to build and operate than just operating a, a current coal or natural gas plant. And that's the point at which sometimes you start to see a lot of capital start turnover happening, is is when you start to get to that point. And that, that's really where we've been trying to get to.
0: I'm looking at some data here that forecasts the next 30 years, uh, 2023 to 2053, And based on inputs from sources around the world, the calculation is that investments in solar are going to go up nearly 200 percent, wind over 250 percent. And interesting number two, to your earlier point in the preamble here, was transmission and delivery, 225 percent. But fossil fuel, down 56 percent, we're just not going to invest there, and then extraction- that's also going to be coming down. Now, granted, the solar, wind, transmission, and delivery, those percentages are coming off of a fairly small base, and the fossil fuels and extraction are coming off a fairly big number. But still, the magnitude of that change, and I guess the big question I know that is on everybody's minds is, are we going to produce enough electricity? Are my lights going to work? Is my heat going to work in the winter? So about these technologies is you know, the, the Hoover Dam's about ready to stop because we don't have enough water in there. Are we getting enough electricity?
1: Yeah, uh, I think let's let's sort of tease that one apart a little bit. <clears throat> Just to give you a scalar for where the wind energy industry is in, in the U.S. today. Uh, in 2020, uh, there was over 14 gigawatts of wind installed in the U.S. So what does that mean? Oh. Uh, well, that's equivalent to seven Hoover Dams. Wow.
0: Well. Okay, nice. Good to know.
1: So, so you know, the, the, we're talking about an enormous industry at this point in time, and it's growing at about 8% per year. <clears throat> but let's put that into, into scale. And even though we've been doing this since, well, probably 40 years, uh, we've been putting new wind energy into the package, and, and basically the most of it's happened in the last 10, uh, we're still only 10% of the U.S. energy uh, needs uh, coming from wind uh, currently uh, and that's and, and for solar uh, it 's only three percent but it's but both are growing dramatically so it 's going to take a while to uh, to move this needle uh, you know just to give you uh, another piece of scalar you know uh, the u s is the largest nuclear energy producer in the world uh, we produce more like elect- you produce more electricity from uh, nuclear energy. And wind now produces almost half of half of what nuclear energy produces in the United States today, so just to give you an idea, it's already a very big industry it's already well established, and it's already something that I think can be uh, can be counted upon as being uh, an excellent resource um, and- Nrel, uh, which is the national research uh, National uh, Renewable Energy Lab has done a lot of electrical system integration studies, and those system integration studies have illustrated that some seventy to eighty percent of the system could be combined, could be made up of renewable energy uh, and zero emissions energy resources. Wow. That, that would 70, to 80%? Really?
0: seventy to eighty percent. Seventy to eighty percent.
1: Wow. And 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 that won't require a lot more transmission. Some. There's certainly some transmission as you've alluded to, but more importantly, it's about regulation and it's about the way in which the electricity business is currently regulated, which is jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And and those jurisdictions don't play well in the same sandbox. Uh, they don't want to uh, take resources from their system and share it with anybody else. or And uh, conversely, they don't feel confident that they can, Depend upon another system to, to basically help them in the, in the times of need. So, so essentially, each jurisdiction is built like a little fiefdom that takes care of its own energy needs, and very rarely. Uh, transmits back and forth other than for um, you know just just uh, uh, commercial reasons or or in the case of an, an extreme emergency.
0: That is a very interesting aspect of this whole discussion. And I had no idea that these renewables were coming on so strong, albeit from a small base. And what about the question of reliability? I know that there are critics that will say, look, we can generate power using coal. We can use you know, natural gas plants. We can use nuclear. And your light switch is going to work when you hit it. You plug in your car and it's going to charge. What's the work that's going on in making renewables reliable? Or, or is that just fear tactics?
1: Well, I think I think uh, let's let's sort of examine the that a little bit deeper in terms of you know what is reliability. Um, you know, in the early stages of the electricity business, basically uh, you had a generator right next to your to your use, uh, and and essentially demand was unreliable. <laughs> uh, basically, you didn't know whether when somebody was going to turn on a light switch and electricity is very different than any other energy resource because it has to be there in milliseconds. So the supply and demand have to be balanced instantaneously. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no sort of, uh, fudge factor in here. Like, for instance, in the natural gas business, you've got packing in the in the pipeline that allows you some surge uh, opportunities. And, and you've got storage in the natural gas business. And you've got reservoirs you can turn on or turn off. Well, the electricity business is very much uh, supply and demand must be instantaneously matched. So uh, how do we know that somebody's going to turn on their light switch? Well, uh, that... And, and consume x amount of of energy well the answer is you don't it, it, it but in aggregate we know approximately where that demand curve is going to be during the day and we know it simply because that's the habits that people have you know they wake up in the morning they turn on their everything they, they come home at night they turn on their air conditioning et cetera et cetera so we know what the we know what the patterns are so demand can generally be predicted well, the same thing happens when you're looking at renewable energy. Uh, you you end up with renewable energy over a dispersed area, and this is really where interconnection is is extraordinarily helpful. Is that you know it's not windy in, in all places at all times, and it's not sunny in all places at all times, but in aggregate, you can start to map it out. And so when we start to talk about reliability, it's really around whether. Uh, whether, the, whether it's predictable and whether you can figure out how to predict it. And then the other piece of the puzzle is the electricity business is always built from a supply basis. So demand had to be met. Uh, demand was totally in, uh, was considered uh, totally inelastic. As an economist, you know what, you, you know what I mean when I say that. But basically, demand was whatever it was and supply had to meet it. So it was really only above the supply curve. Today, uh, with digitalization and and some really major changes to the uh, uh, to the electrical business, we're starting to see demand actually being able to play. And so, a perfect example of this is Uber, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, Uber. There's a supply of of people driving around with their cars, and there's a, a you know, there's a demand for for rides, and digitization has really allowed those two to be matched in a much more economically viable fashion and, and so you can so you can get you do get surge pricing and people avoid riding at that time or whatever. So I think the, the most important part of this is that as we're evolving technologically here we're also seeing reliability being becoming uh, less and less of an issue.
0: I was watching an interview earlier this week with John Doerr, the prolific and very successful investor talking about the transition, you know, going to be a bumpy road. And I kind of put that next to a lot of the data that we see that in the United States, oil production from 1970 until 2008 really decreased. It came down. 2009, that trend reversed and production started to rise. And in 2019, the United States made more crude oil than ever at over 12 million barrels a day. And of course, you know, there was fracking and other things involved in Texas and uh, North Dakota, Ohio, elsewhere. And also concurrently that the demand decreased and uh, we had, we reached the lowest level of imported oil since 1985. And some of those policies, of course, been reversed. And I was starting to be concerned about that. I'm thinking, well, if those renewables get here quick enough and people can afford electric cars, both which are question marks, you know, maybe this is a bump in the road. But I did want to ask you about that because look, consumers are experiencing record high gasoline prices. The heating season's coming up. So I'm wondering, how are we doing on timing? Are we cutting over to renewables too quickly to sustain this.
1: Oh, well, let's uh, let's go back and get a little perspective. Um, you know, back in the seventies, you and I lived through the seventies.
0: <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, Thankfully, there's no, there were no cell phones, so I was never there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the free
1: market is an amazing thing, and the ingenuity of individuals is remarkable. When we when we sort of look at this uh, you know, on a macro scale, and I'm not being Pollyannish with respect to that, I'm I'm looking at back in the 70s we thought we were going to run out of oil very quickly. Uh, we thought uh, that that oil was uh, uh, a very that uh, that the, the we just explored for in. in basically found all the oil in the world.
0: Peak oil. Remember that it would take too much energy to get what was left out of the ground. Peak oil was over. There were lots of books and papers written about peak oil. They turned out to make money for the guys that wrote the books, but they really (laughs) were off base. (laughs)
1: Well, I I think it was based on a lot of good uh, talent. I mean, I remember M. King Hubbard, M. King Hubbard. He was the uh, he was the, uh, the a disciple, or he was a he was the guru, if you will, uh, to to most of us geologists in that age. And and you know, peak oil was a big was a big deal. Um, but what we found out is actually there's just more oil than we know what to do with in uh, on the earth, and that's largely because we found brand new. Uh, Uh, Ways to extract it, but also brand new reservoirs, Uh, things that we never even thought were so called reservoirs—shales that we uh, that are packed full of organics and oil uh, that we never thought were actually reservoirs. We knew the oil was there; we just didn't know how to get it out. And and that's changed that whole picture dramatically. So, I I I tend to um, I I I, I tend to try and take a long view on this, uh, which is, uh, are we cutting over to to renewables too quickly? No, I don't think so. Uh, and I don't think that we're going to make any serious errors with respect to that from a point of view of the technological um, benefits that you and I receive on in, in our electrical plug at the at the end because, Basically, the electrical companies and, and the market is set up to deliver electricity. And when it doesn't, it, it, there's severe penalties for doing so. Uh, Texas is a perfect example.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, what happened down there? I mean, people are, you know, experiencing power outages. I mean, California, you're rolling brownouts and Texas basically freezing the residents of Texas because they couldn't manage the the power grid.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's this is a really uh, – that's a great example of – of what's going on here. And, you know, a lot of, it was interesting because I was reading an article in the, in the Wall Street Journal and a friend of mine was reading another article in the Wall Street Journal. One, one article was blaming wind energy for the, uh, for the, for the collapse of the electricity business in uh, in Texas. And the other one was really examining what was really at the, the heart of the whole problem, which was that, our infrastructure or Texas infrastructure was not hardened to any kind of cold temperatures and when you look at the gas pipelines and the individual gas wells that were producing to uh, to the energy system uh, basically they froze off they uh, hydrates form which is ice in the in the uh, in the pipes and it blocks it off and it takes takes sometimes weeks to uh, to clear it you know other parts of the world we put alcohol into the natural gas stream to deal with hydrates but in the in Texas, they don't do that, uh, and as a consequence, the entire gas system essentially collapsed. Uh, meaning that you couldn't get heat to your home simply because you couldn't get you couldn't get natural gas if you were on natural gas. You couldn't get electricity because a lot of the natural gas uh, generators were down. Coal plants were trying to be fired up but actually the coal uh, piles were frozen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it was difficult to get enough coal into the coal plants, into various coal plants to, uh, to be able to generate enough electricity. Yes, wind energy was not at a maximum, but it was anticipated not to be high simply because of the period of time of the year the wind wind was not high and solar was not high uh, so the, the it was a it was really a failure of the infrastructure not a failure of any one resource and I think that's an important thing for people to remember is that our infrastructure needs to be hardened to many uh, of the challenges that we're going to face as we go forward either on the hot side or on the cold side you know California is another example of that which you know, I think uh, sadly, so many wildfires in in uh, California have have really, uh, you know, created huge disruption for people. Some of them even caused by electrical wires coming down um, when they get too when you get too much load on electrical wire, it sags and it and if it's really uh, significant, both from a hot day and from a point of view of the amount of electricity going through it it sags enough that it can cause fires. Uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that can happen to our infrastructure that lead to rolling blackouts. Um, you know, and in California, now it's almost a precautionary tale in order to, to try to make sure that they don't create problems with fires when they have high winds and, and hot, very hot days. Um, you know, they will shut down various different parts of the, the system. But that's not the resource. And it's really important to, to divorce some of this um, uh, you know, chatter, if you will, about what's going on, uh, and, and start to really tease it out and say, you know, how do we make the infrastructure more bulletproof? And you know, Texas is a great example. ERCOT is an island. ERCOT does not do much trading with its surrounding partners. And had they had they been better interconnected, ERCOT would have probably survived the 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 uh, What happened?
0: ERCOT, that that kind of proprietary uh, uh, energy resource coalition of Texas, something like that.
1: Well, ERCOT ERCOT is is basically the control district of Texas, basically the uh, the electricity control district of Texas, and they basically run everything uh, in the Texas electricity system. Uh, Which is which happens in various different regions? Uh, PGM, uh, uh, which is uh, on the East Coast, and and uh, New York ISO and uh, California ISO, they are control districts. But again, these these groups don't generally talk to one another very well in terms of through the interconnection system. And had ERCOT been better interconnected, we probably wouldn't have seen the kind of catastrophe that we did in Texas.
0: Fred, one of the things we're trying to get done on the Common Bridge is to talk about policy and you know most of our politics or maybe not most of it but too much of it it's about attacks one party attacks the other party and tries to scare people about them and vice versa and we talk about you know frankly nonsense it's not going to make a difference in our lives i mean wouldn't it be refreshing if a person running for a state office or a you know national office said look i want to do the following things for energy kind of would be a better day if we had more computer scientists and geologists serving in the Congress than maybe some of the products out of law school. Failure of our government, but what we try to do on the uh, Common Bridge is to talk about policy, and hopefully people will use that as a means of communicating with those that they elect. Fred, we've talked a lot about the production and the transmission of energy, and kind of also think about that global appetite for energy, the demand side, you know cooling, emerging markets. you know you got people are buying air conditioners now as as they become you know more modern, more more industrialized society, electric vehicles we talked about demand response, energy storage. and can we produce? the amount of kilowatts to meet that growing demand. I mean, it's not like we're chasing a fixed amount of demand. We're, we're chasing a demand that appears to be rising.
1: Well, overall energy demand is actually, in the United States, has been pretty flat, actually. Um, uh, overall uh, primary energy demand. Um, it's it's hard to imagine, but it's been relatively flat over the last several years. Uh, and it's uh, and declining in most OECD countries. So, um, you know, in, in, in many ways, I think we, we do think of energy needs as, as growing dramatically. Now, one place where it is growing dramatically is, is in uh, Asia and also in Africa, uh, and, and those economies definitely are requiring substantially more energy, but even those, those uh, economies are slowing down in terms of the amount of energy use, and this has been, a, been something that's been happening over the last several years they're still growing but they're slowing and it, 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 a lot of that's being driven by efficiency uh, a lot of that's being driven by the move to electrification you know electrification does is substantially more efficient than than uh, uh primary energy use you know combustion combustion uh you know, probably 60% of combustion uh, goes, uh, goes out in the form of heat and is lost. Uh, so, so electricity and electrification is a really uh, valuable uh, improvement to to our energy use. Uh, so can we produce enough kilowatt hours? Well, you know, I think, I think that's a really um, interesting question when you look at, you know, is it just kilowatt hours that we need? uh you know if you look at our at the united states uh energy consumption primary energy consumption it's about 100 quadrillion btus wow. annually that, that doesn't mean much but let's just sort of pick That's that apart a lot
0: of zeros okay it's in there
1: <laughs> let's just pick that apart a little bit because because really uh you know when you when you boil it right down to it about uh, you know only about 30% of that is is electricity, um, and you know, you know, I actually, uh, it's it's a it's about it's closer to forty percent of the primary energy requirements uh, come from electricity.
0: You know, Fred, it's very comforting to know that we can produce kilowatts for electricity. It's really interesting what those that we elect aren't doing that they should. And that there's a lot more to this than electricity. I know look, we've only skimmed the surface today. And it sounds like the pathway away from hydrocarbons is well underway. Spain, for example, is at 58% of uh, renewables. 18% of that's hydro, 40% wind and solar. But they're still using coal and oil and other hydrocarbons. And I understand that the world's going to be dependent on hydrocarbons and will be for the foreseeable future. And I understand your nuance that getting down to zero emissions, that we can get to those emission standards and maybe bring down that increase in worldwide temperature is possible. So what is the policy or what are the policy solutions? What things make sense to you in terms of energy policy, either for the United States, North America, or the world, any way you want to talk about it.
1: Well, I think it's important to remember that, uh, you know, one, how large this business is and how uh, how all-encompassing all encompassing this business is. And that takes you to the place of the, the, the free market, the marketplace is really essential to being able to solve these issues. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a reason why central – uh, casting of 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 the energy business doesn 't work and that 's because it 's just so disseminated and and so i I really focus my efforts on trying to bring people to the to the understanding that the marketplace is an essential tool to trying to be able to solve this problem uh, and it, you know certainly uh, partisan politics isn't helping this because we get into these pitch battles that really are Ridiculous, right? Uh, we're all trying to solve uh, this problem, or we all like to try and solve this problem. We have various different ways of coming at it. Let's figure out the best ways to try and get at it, uh, versus trying to fight and uh, or or put our heads in the sand or whatever it happens to be. So, I, I'm a big supporter of the carbon tax, um, you know, and and quite frankly, it was a Republican-led initiative uh, by uh, Schultz and Baker. Uh, some time ago now, and uh, I've provided some of that information in the show notes that I've, that I'm sending along, which, which was really, uh, I think it could garner some real support across party lines. And, and the reason why is because the whole idea is you, you put a tax on the carbon, but you give the proceeds back to the citizens. And the citizens can of uh, the carbon tax. You 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 dividend out, if you will, the the proceeds of the carbon tax on a, on a more distributed basis across the, across the country. So people are making their choices based on the carbon content. Basically, is what it boils down to. Uh, that puts a lot of imagination and a lot of individual. Um, initiative into trying to figure out how to solve this problem rather than trying to pick winners and losers and i think the real danger that we have is that we'll go out and we'll pick some technology and we'll say that's a winner you know a perfect example is electrolysis to produce hydrogen Uh, and we can get into that in another moment but but basically it's trying to pick a winner versus trying to let the market determine what should be the right solution so I, I really like a carbon tax, and I think I think if you look at uh, Schultz and Baker's work, it was uh, it was excellent, and it to me forms a uh, framework that uh, the United States should be having a very solid conversation about this. And I don't think it's a partisan conversation. I think you can have a very nonpartisan conversation.
0: We've already proven that you can take a state that is basically one party for the Democrats in California and screw up the electric grid and you can take a state that is, you know, largely one party for the Republicans in Texas and freeze people. So, yeah, I think I kind of like the market better. Fred, offline, you talked to me about a carbon import tariff. If I understand that correctly, that could mean more domestically produced products. What is a carbon import tariff and how would it work?
1: Yeah, I think uh, Schultz and Baker called something different in their paper, but uh, regardless what it is is essentially uh goods coming into the country are are ranked by their carbon content uh, uh from a point of view of the energy used or the emissions associated with the uh, with the product coming in. And you know, the products that come from countries that have very loose uh emission standards uh will will be basically uh charged this tariff and it makes products that are made in a less carbon-intensive fashion, um, uh, basically a lower cost. So it, it it really does foster domestic um, production of various different products that are mu- much lower carbon. So I think I, th- I think it's an important tool to be able to discriminate against just uh, offshoring our carbon issues. And I think that's that's really the the point of the, the matter here.
0: Another policy that I'm curious about that at the top of the interview, you talked about the work that you're doing looking for pathways to, you know, and transmissions and and to get the energy to the point of use. Are there things that can be done to incentivize interconnecting infrastructure?
1: I think this is a this becomes a bit of a regulatory discussion, uh, but it's more than a regulatory discussion because the United States and Canada have the same problem, right? Which is that we are very regionally, we have very significant regional power uh, powers and and uh, if you will, um, jurisdictional responsibilities. Energy is one of them, and uh, we have to figure out how do we start to work together in order to solve the larger problems associated with interconnection. And, and that really is, is it's quite fascinating because uh, Australia has a very similar situation to what we have, but all of the states decided that they were going to get together and figure out how they could mutually benefit from an interconnected grid, and they've done it. And, and that's uh a really highly interconnected grid. Now it doesn't mean there aren't bun fights and and issues associated with that, but it's a whole lot better than the way we are right now in, in North America, where we are uh so restricted in terms of that everything must be generated within the jurisdiction or at least we must have the the kind of reliability within the jurisdiction to be able to survive any outage and we need to learn how to be more dependent upon one another's strengths and and so that that's my that's essentially my pitch with respect to how why we need more interconnection now can you imagine the United States without the interstate highway system
0: right exactly
1: i mean this this is what we're talking about we're talking about each little jurisdiction has their own uh for highways, and they don't talk very well with the inter- with the with the states between. Can you imagine what that would have the the break on commerce uh, must have been back in the fifties when when Eisenhower decided that the interstate system needed to be well supported, and you know it, it's been such a an enormous benefit to the United States uh, this this interconnected system of highways that that is so robust it was really an essential element to prosperity developing in the United States over the last, you know, since the fifties. So that's the kind of situation we've got in the electrical power business uh, is we have no interstate highway system.
0: Fred, this has been a great conversation. I know I've learned a lot. I like the policy clarity and my guess is going to be our readers, our listeners, our viewers are going to want to hear more from you been very generous with your time, but for the purposes of today, what didn't we cover today that perhaps we should have discussed?
1: Well, I think electrification is a very powerful tool and uh, renewable energy is a really important part of developing uh, a better electrical system. But uh, even if we completely electrify the... uh, completely... um, sorry, even if we completely reduce the emissions on the electric power system and we electrify all of the passenger car transportation, light truck transportation, there's still about 50% of our energy use in the United States that is that is really hydrocarbon-based. And that's cement plants and uh, steel mills and um, uh, fertilizer and petrochemicals and, and uh, many other Uh, intense energy users. And to get at that, we need a second energy carrier and and a second zero emissions energy carrier. So like electricity, in order to be able to flip that thing on its head, like we talked about it right at the beginning, which was instead of sending the carbon to the end user to, to, to burn, we need to take the carbon up front. Hydrogen is one of those opportunities that allows us to to do for the rest of the uh, of our energy system what electricity has done for a significant portion of it. Uh, so 50% of the problem still remains and it's not gonna get solved with electricity. So in my view, we need to find that second zero emissions energy carrier and hydrogen looks like it's pretty good because it can be burned, it can be turned into petrochemicals and it's right away a per- precursor for fertilizers and it it provides intense heat for things like uh, cement kilns etc so i really i really think that it's important to, to delve into that one really deeply and figure out how do we produce hydrogen and it's a to me your common bridge is a perfect example we need to bridge the gap for the petroleum industry into refining their product to a lower carbon fuel at the far end so in other words how do we get the petroleum industry to refine the carbon out and just produce energy for that end user that's not covered by electricity?
0: Fred, do you know something? I think I'd feel a lot better with you as a secretary of energy, <laughs> um, that this has been a great conversation, lots more to talk about in terms of energy, but you've been very informative. I'd I'd like to have you back just to talk about hydrogen and the role there. For the readers, listeners, and viewers of the Common Bridge, we've been visiting with our guest, Fred Gallagher, who's been involved with the energy industry in all forms, and not only the generation, but the transmission, the use, and who has a great balanced view about our policies. Please join us on the Common Bridge and comment at Substack please look up The Common Bridge. You can subscribe for free and add your comments to the discussion on podcast outlets, your favorite podcast, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and others, as well as on YouTube TV. And so with our guest, Fred Gallagher, this is Rich Helper, your host, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on substack.com where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe.